Uh, good morning. Let me add to uh, Mike's welcome, a welcome to all of you. And I'll ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to read the first five verses this morning. And uh, interestingly enough, we just walk our way through the verses. And the verses that are before us this morning should be answering for us the question, what should a church expect of its leaders? So it's a good Sunday to talk about it. Matt and Chris are gone. We can say whatever we want to. <clears throat> so First uh, Peter chapter 5 and uh, verses 1 through 5. And I'll ask you, if you're physically able, I'll ask you to stand in uh, honor of the Lord's Word, and we'll read those first five verses. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercise in oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray together. Lord, we look to you, and as we um, have sung about this morning, we do want to give you glory and honor. And sometimes we get in our own way as we attempt to do that. And so I ask that this morning as I speak and as people listen, that our hearts would be turned towards you. I pray that your word would build us uh, for the long haul, that it, our faith not be a, a, a flash, but it be something that's steady and deep and that sustains us in the time of hardship. Lord, I know that when words are spoken, they just kind of fall flat unless they're enlivened by your Spirit, and they don't bring hope unless they're enlivened by your Spirit. And so I ask that you would do just that this morning. All of us come in with different things, and there's no way that uh, someone speaking can address all of them. But in your goodness, you have a way of applying your word to our hearts as a salve when we need that, as something that brings conviction when we need that and his comfort when we need that. And so I pray that you would do that this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So what should a church expect of its leaders? I think that's probably a good question for us and probably a good question for us in the light of our day. Suppose for a moment that you could somehow forget everything that you know about church or imagine yourself being someone who knows little to nothing about church and increasingly in our culture there are people who have not been inside of the church they they have no idea about what goes on inside of the church walls but if the only information that you had about church you gathered from news sources it's quite likely that you would form an opinion about church uh, that wouldn't be hopefully true, but it would seem that the church is a place that's a haven for self-absorbed leaders who either misuse or con a, a smallish group of people, and that there are certain leaders who are creating their own little kingdom and uh, doing what uh, brings to them advancement or brings to them pleasure. 
And I'll just ask you to imagine with me, if you will, if, if you do not know about church and you're listening on the news, consider the press that the church has had over the past several decades. I'm not going to be particularly specific, but if you're of a sufficient age, you'll be able to read between the lines and understand uh, some of what has taken place in the church. But the headlines are not good. Think of the Catholic Church. It was rocked by scandal due to the ugly lives of some priests. What compounded that ugliness was the subsequent cover-ups that occurred, the enablement of these kind of ugly lives. If you had turned on the TV during the Gulf War and even after that, a couple decade, a decade or so ago, you would see a church called Westboro Baptist Church that gained notoriety that would show up at various funerals for various reasons and would picket and generally say horrible things that misrepresented what God is really like. But that's what the newscasters picked up and that's what they would portray to people. If you turn on the TV now, almost to any station or channel, you can find a seemingly unending number of hucksters who use God's name to sell the devil's wares. It seems that most of the television pastors have advanced degrees in, in fleecing people, figuring out how they can use God words so that they can manipulate the needy so that the needy give them money so that they can support their lavish lifestyles. Jude, the book of Jude that takes place just a few books after this book in, of Peter gives a description and these people fit that description. It says of them that they're shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain. They're trees without fruit. They're wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame. They're wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. And those are the words that the, the Bible has for these kind of teachers who, who line their own pockets they promise one thing, but deliver something different. If you are interested in these things and alert to them, there's a documentary that's out now about a, a church movement with which we'd have some serious disagreements concerning their understanding of God and His Word, but they still have a strong influence in the world and in the church. But recently this documentary uh, released um, or exposed misuse of power and unfaithfulness to God and unfaithfulness to family. And the news tends to be awash in these kind of stories. But they're not just faraway stories in groups that we would disagree with. When you live long enough, you will hear stories closer to our own circles. Leaders who not just fell into sin, but lived in their sin, continued in their sin, and developed ways to cover over their sin so that it would not be discovered by the people around them. There's other leaders who have turned blind eyes to injustice, and they did that in order to preserve their organization, because if the news came out about the injustices that had occurred, maybe the organization would implode, and so they chose to be silent. They squelch the cries of the mistreated because the show must go on. Other leaders have chosen to remain silent rather than challenge abuses of power. Their silence buys them friendship with the powerful, but it costs them their integrity. And while they barter away their integrity, in the process they wound the wounded and they crush the crushed. The devil gets a lot of mileage out of these stories. And if he can, 
He will do everything that he can to make us cynics of people and cynics of leaders inside the church and cynics of the church itself. The devil advertises the ugly. And if you were not familiar with church, your assumption would be that that is what church is. Self-serving people who will run over other people in an attempt to make their lives what they assume to be better. But the reality is that thousands upon thousands of people have quietly, faithfully, and diligently led the church down through the years. Their names are not in lights. They're largely unsung and unknown. They lived and many have died being faithful to a small group of people over a long period of time. And they've spent their lives in the shadows, so, so to speak, unsung, unheralded, but faithful nonetheless. And as you recount back through your own mind, you will remember certain people along the way who look nothing like what the news portrays of church leadership, but genuine, humble, faithful servants of God. So what should a church expect of its leaders? Leaders that lead unfaithful, unfaithfully lead contrary to the Scripture, lead contrary to the Bible. There are criteria for church leadership, and the people inside of the church, us, should have every expectation that their leaders live up to the biblical patterns. So these verses that we read this morning provide for us a template for faithful church leadership. Now, I want to say just one thing about a word that's inside of the verses that we read and then make a couple of observations. The first thing is the term elders. As Peter begins to talk, he says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. And I'm only slowing down for this because I grew up in a tradition where we didn't have elders. And so when I first came across the, el the term elders, it seemed somewhat strange to me. The context that I had for the word elders was respect your elders. I assume we still say that to kids. I don't know. But what we meant by that was expect, respect the gray hairs that you see. And there's good to that. But the, the term elders comes from the Old Testament. And primarily in the Old Testament, those who sat at the gates where the, where the business of the, of the nation was conducted were older people and older men, and they were called elders. And so that term kind of got transferred over into the New Testament, and over time it began to mean leaders. And so you might, inside of the text, it depends on which translation you're reading, you might see that word as elders, you might see it as pastors, you might see it as, in some places, the word bishop. And so it's a term that speaks to the, the leadership of the church. Now, in our church, we, we uh, I don't want to say conflate, because that seems to have a negative connotation, but we, we sometimes we use the term pastor, and sometimes we use the term elder, but it, it's the same office, the same um, same people, but the, the idea there is elders are the leaders of the church. Now, hopefully that doesn't create any uh, tripping points for anyone, but let me lay out now just uh, two things that we need to observe before we look at the verses. First, the verses that we read started with the word so. So verse 1, it says, so I exhort uh, the elders among you. So the instruction to the elders here in 1 Peter 5 is, is predicated on what we have been seeing so far in the book of 1 Peter. 
And what has been stated thus far in the book of 1 Peter was that God's people can anticipate some level of suffering, that they should be unsurprised by it, and that they should remain hopeful in it. And if you were to boil down what we've read so far from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, through 1 Peter chapter 4, the last verse, that is essentially what it is saying. Don't be surprised by suffering. Remain hopeful in that suffering. The reason that God's people suffer is that they follow a Jesus who suffered. One of the reasons that Jesus suffered was because he was suffering what we call a substitutionary death. That is, he carried the weight and the punishment of our sin, and he died as a substitute in our place. And that is the sorrow of the cross. But the hope of the cross is that whoever trusts that Jesus paid for their sins is no longer required to pay for their own sins. And so a substitution takes place whereby Jesus takes on all of our bad, all of our evil, and offers to us all of his righteousness. And so we can accept his righteousness and give to him all of our bad, all of our evil, all of our sin. And whoever does that is not required to pay for their sins any longer. And what awaits them now, at this point, when they trust Jesus, is not condemnation from a demanding God, but instead joy and delight from a giving God. And the giving God gives life, and the giving God gives eternal life. And the promise is that at the end of, of all of this, of all of this temporary life that the, we're living, there is a final glory and a final gladness when God's children finally come home. That is one reason that Jesus suffered. And that really is kind of on the, on, the, on, the, on the believer's side. That's what we see as Jesus suffered. But another reason that Jesus suffered is that he insisted that people could not erase the guilt of their own sin and that they needed a Savior. And he declared to them that he was that Savior. But people like to pay for their own sin. And they become incensed when they are told that their good works are insufficient. So they worked it out so that this self-proclaimed Savior, Jesus, would suffer. Now we know from the rest of the story that his resurrection put a dent in their plans. But that is one reason why Christ's followers also suffer. Because people who follow after Jesus declare that they cannot save themselves. They have looked into their own hearts. They have seen the... the um, the deceit and all the things that are inside of their own hearts and they have concluded that they cannot save themselves and they have also concluded that no one can save themselves but that Jesus came to die on behalf of sinners and that message is a dividing line among people one set of people is saying well this is Jesus who died for my sins who intervened on my behalf because I could not save myself and on the other side, there's a group of people who, says, who say, well, I can redeem myself. I can make myself better. I can make myself righteous. And I can make myself uh, pleasing and acceptable to God. But the Christian message is that Jesus comes to intervene in the lives of people. And unless we trust in him, then we do not have hope of pleasing God. When we do, we do please God. But Corinthians talks about this and says that this truth, to some it's the fragrance of life. That we can actually believe in Jesus and he can rescue us from our sins. To others though, it's the aroma of death. And sometimes those who hold a disdain for the Christian message of hope 
disdain it so completely that they're determined to make Christians suffer. And that's what was happening for the church that Peter is writing to. And so Peter's still holding this in his mind as he talks about what the elders and the leaders of the church are supposed to be. So that's one anchor point, what has gone on in 1 Peter up to this point. The second anchor point is a little bit more uh, uh, difficult to see. But the second anchor point seems to be the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Now, if, if you had time to search it out, you would see that some of the terminology that comes at the end of 1 Peter chapter 4 and the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 5 is similar to terms that are used by the prophet Ezekiel in his book uh, from the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, he uses the imagery of leaders as shepherds. And that's kind of common in the Old Testament, but Ezekiel uses this theme. But in Ezekiel, it's calling out unfaithful leaders. And these unfaithful leaders, these unfaithful shepherds, their, their selfish pursuits led the people astray from God and led to the judgment of God. And the suffering that the people in the book of Ezekiel were undergoing was because of judgment. And it was designed to bring them back to God, but it, it was suffering nonetheless. And God describes the leaders, these priests that were over the nation of Israel at the time, as unfaithful shepherds. And this is how it describes them. It said that they disheartened the righteous and they encouraged the wicked. God calls them to task. And this is a quote from the book of Ezekiel in which he's speaking to these unfaithful shepherds. And he says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with, force, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So God says he will rescue his people, his sheep, from those faithless shepherds. So as we've seen over the past weeks, P Peter is writing to a people who are suffering. Not because they were unfaithful, but because they were faithful. So Ezekiel addresses uh, what unfaithful shepherds do to a suffering people, Peter aims to show what faithful shepherds will do for a suffering people. And so that brings us now to our text this morning. What should a church expect of their leaders? There are some responsibilities that are lined out for us at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. It's a verb that just says simply, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The leaders of the church are to shepherd the flock, but the, the, the the distinguishing feature there is the flock that is among you. Place and proximity, closeness, are important. When leaders become bigger than their place, and when they lose proximity to their sheep, significant dangers begin to develop. Shepherding people was never designed to be touchless. That's why television pastors are virtually helpless as genuine shepherds. I know that we can gain some help in some places from them, but they cannot know us, and they cannot know our sufferings. And what we need as a people is shepherds who we can look in the eyeballs. We need shepherds that we can know and who can know us. We need to know that their reality matches their rhetoric. We need to know that their walk matches their, their words. We need to know whether their conversation matches their conduct. Shepherds isolated from their flocks are not true shepherds whatsoever. 
And so the very first thing that is stated here for the leaders is that they need to be among the people. They need to be with them, and they need to shepherd the, the people that are around them. That is, they don't look down the street to shepherd some other flock. They shepherd the sheep that are right here. This is their responsibility. So verse 2 says, shepherd the flock that is among you. I have to put on my glasses now. Sorry, you guys. Shepherd the flock that is among you. And then the next phrase says, exercising oversight. Now we're getting ready to see how it is that the leaders, the elders, ought to exercise oversight. So there's going to be a, a string of phrases that will help us with that. But the way the elders lead, or should lead, does not eliminate the necessity to lead. In church life, decisions must be made. Directions must be taken. There are sheep to be protected. There are lines that have to be drawn. Oversight must be exercised. Being a shepherd or an elder is not simply a title. It's a serious and sobering responsibility to lead God's people. And often it's leading people who are going through suffering. And weakness and indecisiveness from shepherds doesn't help anybody. And while we should expect that leaders and elders will lead in a certain way, we need to take care that we don't assume that they don't lead at all. They do need to make hard decisions. Now, there's a way in which they ought to do that. But when elders take their job seriously, they understand that at some point in the future, they will stand before God and give an account for how they have interacted with the lives of the people that they serve. And that should be a sobering and heavy reality for anyone who serves as an elder. So what should the church expect of their leaders? We should expect that they will defend against spiritual predators. That they'll make decisions that help God's people move forward in their suffering. We should expect that they will lead in a way that helps people hope deeply in God's sovereignty and God's goodness. We should expect that they're present and engaged in the flock that is around them. But the verses continue on from here and they tell us, give us three contours of good leadership. And so carrying on in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The first of those says to lead willingly and not from compulsion. The idea is that someone who is in the role of an elder should not find it a burden to serve God's people in this way. There are a lot of demands on an elder. He has all the demands of family life, all the demands uh, that, are, that are normal for all of us. Elders have the natural fatigue that comes from life. But there should not be a sense that some person or some problem is an imposition to them when it gets presented to them. There should be an underlying willingness to enter into the problems of people. And the text goes on to say not just that they are willing, but that they also ought, ought also to be eager. The leading should be done eagerly. Contrasted in this text over against doing things for personal gain. And if we borrow from 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy, 
Money is not the root of all evil, but the love of it is. And when people begin to serve with an eye towards money, they're quickly going to find that Jesus meant what he said when he said you cannot serve God and money. You're going to serve either one or the other. And some elders and some of the falls that we hear on the news have been because elders have been led astray by the allure of riches. Maybe they've found that their particular skills employed in a certain way generates dollars into their bank account. And they begin to develop a, a taste for personal gain. And so they begin to use people to bring about their own ends. And in the process, truth gets twisted and people get played. And all of that is carefully wrapped up in God words for the benefit of the unfaithful shepherd. And these things ought not be. And we ought not support those who do those types of things. Being poor is not a sign of spiritual maturity. You can be mature with money. You can be mature without money. And as a church, we should financially care for leaders who serve as elders as an occupation. But the leaders themselves, the elders themselves, should, should serve eagerly with no hint of devouring the flock to feed the appetite of the shepherd. You can be sure that someone aiming to increase his gain on the backs of suffering saints is not a faithful shepherd. And the word has very harsh words for shepherds who shepherd in that way. The last of these three uh, contours that they should serve humbly, not from power, not domineering. The elders who lead should be marked by humility. A domineering approach has no place in the life of a faithful shepherd. The fact that they should lead does not give them free reign to demand of people. It's leadership, it's not dictatorship, and frequently when we hear about these falls, this is what has happened. Some guy has kind of gained some notoriety, he's gained some, some influence, and then he begins to twist that influence and use it in a wrong way and domineers over people and browbeats people into things, and this ought not be. As the text says to us, the flock is only in their charge. Meaning that it's not the flock. We as sheep don't belong to the elders as shepherds. We're God's flock. Loaned for a period of time to certain shepherds. And elders ought to take great care to remember that. Elders should lead with a clear understanding that they're accountable to God for the sheep. And they should conduct themselves with a certain amount of fear and trembling. And as it says to us in this text, it's not the, the, the forcefulness of the words, but the influence of their lives should be the example that leads the sheep to follow after Christ. So what should, we, what should the church expect of their leaders? We should expect that the elders will work willingly, eagerly, and humbly. And then it says to us at verse 4 that there's a, a shepherd's reward. And it says, and when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The reward for the elders is that the chief shepherd, Jesus, will return. And if they've served well, they'll be commended for their work. Well done, good and faithful servant. The expectation here is that there's going to be many who will be rewarded when Jesus appears. Despite the elders that abuse their role, the anticipation is that many, many elders will faithfully serve the flock. 
the chief shepherd, Jesus is their example. And the chief, chief shepherd will, will commend their unsung work. And I say again that for every elder who either goes astray or who is ultimately revealed as a fraud, there are hundreds who will hear well done from the chief shepherd. Now as we make our way through this text, verses 1 through 4 address the role of the elders, but verse 5 has the flock's responsibility. And so at verse 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The requirements for the elders now gives way for the, to the responsibility of the flock. And it says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Humble leadership and humble following. To follow humbly doesn't mean that we passively accept leaders who lead without humility, eagerness, or willingness. Those types of leaders need to be challenged. The Bible insists that we expect that of our leaders. This is what it has laid out. It does mean that we recognize that our leaders are just men. And they themselves are maturing in their Christian faith. And they will stumble and hopefully they will learn. They won't be perfect. And we should be gentle when they're not perfect. But we should also recognize there ought to be a, a strong strain of humility inside of them that when they do fail, that they receive correction and they move forward. If we can recognize in them the desire to lead with humility, then we can help them in their leadership by, by humbly following as well. Because what is at stake for both the leader and the follower is the favor of God. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Laura and I lived in France for a brief period of time, about nine months or so. And uh, we, were, we were getting ready to head back, to come back to the States. And uh, there was a, a gentleman there in the church. He came up to me after the service. He goes, uh, hey, Bill, um, I have... I have high hopes for you that the Lord will use you. And I was like, all right, that's great, awesome. And then he said, because when I look at you, I see weakness. <laughs> little deflationary there. But then he followed it up with, uh, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. That's the truth. That is the truth. We are weak people. And unless God steps in and moves, unless God enables us to have wisdom, unless God enables us to humbly follow, and unless God enables us to humbly lead, we are going to collapse. We need God to use us in our weakness, and we need to recognize that we need Him. And if as a people, as a flock, and as shepherds, if we can remember that and just follow that, then it will go well for us because God opposes the proud, that should get a lot of light so we recognize that the proud are going to be opposed by God. But we also need to rest in the second half of that verse that says God opposes the proud. But he does give grace to the humble. And if we can embrace the weakness that we feel and that we sense, God will give, grant grace to us. God will be gracious to us as a people if we walk in humility. And that is why... The, probably the best picture 
of what elders ought to be and what we all should aim for is when Jesus is gathering with the disciples in the upper room. It's going to be his last supper with them. And John chapter 13 says it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so it says this, the, the evening meal was in progress and, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. So what do people do when power is put in their hands? And they know they have come from God. And they know that they are returning to God. What do you do? Well, notice how this, this, this lays this out in John. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He knew that he had come from God. And he knew that he was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal. Took off his outer clothing. Wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet. And he dried his, their feet with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knew that all things were under his power. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew he was returning to God. So Jesus got up from the meal, wrapped the towel around his waist, and assumed the role of a servant and washed the disciples' feet. That is what a church should expect of its elders. When men have been granted leadership, when men know who they are before God, when men know that they will give an account to God for their actions, the proper action is to serve the ones that we lead. So John goes on in John 13 and says, when he had finished washing their feet, Jesus put on his Clothes return to his place and says, Do you understand what I just did for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, because that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. It's the only way forward. Otherwise, we're opposed by God. But if we move forward in humility, God gives grace. So what can a church expect of its leaders? What should they insist of their leaders? And what should they insist of themselves? We can expect that they will lead willingly, eagerly, and humbly. And if they conduct themselves in humility, and if we conduct ourselves in humility, then we can anticipate that God will be gracious to us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, just a few verses later from after what we read, says this. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, 
will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'll ask you to stand if you will, and we'll pray together as we get ready to sing. Lord, thank you that you call us as a broken people um, and that you're delighted to use our weakness to display your, your strength. And I pray that you help us to be humble. Help us not to be arrogant as if the gifts and abilities that we have were something that we conjured up. Help us to remember that you granted them to us. And Lord, I pray that you help us to walk in a way that allows you to be gracious to us. Lord, as elders the leaders of this church, I pray that they would walk in a way that demonstrates that you are the only one who is wholly good, but we can rely on you to be good to us. And I pray that as a flock, that we would follow in such a way that demonstrates that we trust in you and that we humbly rely on you, that we believe you enough to see that you will be gracious when we just come in our brokenness and our weakness and we, we just come to you. So Lord, help us. Help us not to walk away from you through our own arrogance. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.